Hello and welcome to this episode of The Complete Interpreter, the podcast from me, Sophie Llewellyn-Smith, aka The Interpreting Coach. Why The Complete Interpreter? Because you are not just interpreting or translation machines. There's more to it than that. And so I hope to bring you with this podcast some holistic CPD, concentrating on tried and tested methods to improve your interpreting skills, also some mindset work and perhaps a bit of marketing sprinkled in there at some point. This is the first podcast episode I have recorded since anybody actually started listening to my podcast. Last week, Andy Gillis posted on LinkedIn about an episode that I recorded on simultaneous and how to be concise in simultaneous. I think that probably helped a lot. Other people found the podcast after I sent out a newsletter with a link to one of the episodes. Anyway, suddenly, last week, I could see the uh, number of downloads going up significantly. And that was a lot of fun. I actually received many emails about the podcast. I won't say I had a bulging inbox, but it was quite a few in emails with suggestions for future episodes, words of thanks, people sharing their experience, and I really appreciate that. So thank you so much for getting in touch because for a while there, I was just sitting in front of my computer, recording my thoughts and thinking, uh, I'm just talking to myself here. Am I ever going to share these ideas with anybody? Is anyone interested? Will anyone care? So it's been nice to feel that I've produced something that is of interest to at least some people. If you have ideas for future episodes, if there's anything you'd like me to cover, bearing in mind my significant limitations, because I am an interpreter, but not a translator, and... Um, you know, I'm trying to think of any more limitations that I have. There are loads. (laughs) For example, I work in Europe. I'm a conference interpreter. So I can't necessarily say anything cogent about public service interpreting or or what the interpreting market is like uh, across the pond. But if you do have ideas, let me know. You can email me at info at theinterpretingcoach.com or if you look at the episode notes, you'll find a link there that you can simply click on to fill in a form. And that would be quite useful for me because it would mean having all the suggestions in one place. Now, one of the great things about producing digital content as I do, uh, creating this podcast, but also running a big summit for interpreters in January called Terp Summit and running webinars and producing e-courses and all the other things I do, is that I get in touch with interpreters from all corners of the globe, which is fantastic because I get an insight into their lives and their work and it's absolutely fascinating. And particularly through Terp Summit, I've been in touch with quite a few colleagues in the US and in Canada and in Central America. This has also meant that there are people who attend some of my courses who are based in the US or based in Venezuela. And by the way, I salute their commitment because sometimes a morning class for me at 10 a.m. is four in the morning for them. So it's very impressive to see that people are willing to cope with the time zones. It does mean that I need to be a little bit careful when I give feedback to people who are working into English in retour. I have to think for a moment before I make comments about pronunciation or usage 
because of course, as you can probably hear, I'm British. I speak with a British accent. I'm based in Europe and 99% of my work has been for the European institutions. So I am coming at it from uh, the perspective of someone who speaks British English with a pronunciation that is reasonably close to what's called RP or received pronunciation. And so most of the time when I make comments about the pronunciation of certain words, I am simply flagging up the fact that there is perhaps one American pronunciation, one British pronunciation, or that usage differs. I'm sure you can hear that in my variant of English, in my pronunciation, there are many, many R's that don't get pronounced. For example, if I say the word far, F-A-R, you can't actually hear that there's a letter R in there. In writing there is, but in my pronunciation it just sounds like one long vowel. There's no rhotic R. I don't say far or park or anything like that. Uh, and so that does affect how I give feedback. Why? Because it's not really up to me to say that one version is right or wrong. And obviously there isn't one accent that is superior to another. They are just two variants of one language. And what is appropriate will depend on what the audience expects and what the audience understands. And also possibly what your employer, if you work for an organisation, wants you to do or expects you to do. On that note, I have to say that I studied phonetics at university for a little while. I absolutely loved it. And I think if I hadn't become an interpreter, there's a chance I would have maybe done a PhD in phonetics if I had found the motivation to study for another three years. <laughs> and then perhaps I'd have become a speech therapist or something like that, because I loved comparing different accents and I found it um, just so fascinating. I moved to Brussels in my early 20s to become an interpreter and one of the things that I found very striking when I started work in the English booth was how some accents were considered okay and other accents were not considered okay. It was very clear that uh, there were some beautiful Irish accents and Scottish accents but that our colleagues who had an accent from Liverpool or Birmingham or Newcastle were toning down their accent and trying to make it sound, I suppose, more like standard English, if there is such a thing, or received pronunciation. And thinking about it now, I suppose part of the reason is that um, Ireland and Scotland are nations, but regional accents from within England were considered less acceptable. By the way, this tallies with the results of many surveys that have been carried out in the UK on the perception of different regional accents. People have really strong feelings, really strong associations with certain accents. For example, the Scottish accent is considered trustworthy here in the UK, whereas uh, an accent from Birmingham is not, and it is one of the least popular accents, if you, if you like. And this has actually affected employment decisions. Certain companies have chosen to employ staff with certain accents, with Scottish accents, for example, to man their phone lines or their support helplines. So this kind of thing is absolutely fascinating. And 
it was something that I found quite shocking when I started work because there isn't a logical reason, there isn't a reason to do with phonetics or clarity or comprehension for why some accents should be more acceptable than others. Why is it easier to understand someone with a strong Scottish accent than someone with a strong Liverpudlian accent? The answer is, it's not easier to understand. Therefore, the reasons behind the acceptability or otherwise of some of these accents are nothing to do with whether the audience can understand them. There are some far more complex issues um, going on there, which I won't discuss in this podcast episode, although I'm pleased to see that some of the prejudice against some regional accents has dissipated. But it's clear to me, and it will be clear to some of you, that we are all fundamentally very accent-centric, if you see what I mean, until, until we gain a greater awareness of how our native language is spoken around the world. And what do I mean by accent-centric? Well, when you grow up, you think that your way of speaking is the right one, possibly the only one. Then you realise that people speak your language with a different accent. Um, but you think your way is right. Or at least you think everyone else has an accent, but you don't. For example, if you grow up in French, in France, sorry, you think that Belgian people speak French with an accent. But if you grow up in Belgium, you think that people who grew up in France speak French with an accent. Nowhere was this illustrated more clearly for me than when I started my website speech pool, where I was trying to get people to contribute practice speeches for interpreting purposes. They had to fill in a form when they uploaded a speech to the, to the site. And on that form, I asked them to state what their accent was. And most of the time, people would fill in the form and write none or standard. I found that fascinating because people from Canada were writing none. People from the UK were writing no accent or standard English. And I was thinking, well, yes, you don't have any accent to your ears, but to everybody else, clearly you do have an accent. So I, I find that uh, accent centrism, the blinkers that we wear about pronunciation, really interesting. And it's true that pronunciation can make us laugh. In this episode, when I actually get round to it, I'm going to be focusing on American English versus British English. And for sure, I've been in the US, where my brother lives, by the way, he's in San Diego, and heard my sister-in-law, for example, um, in a park, mentioning an animal that she called a squirrel. And I was thinking, what is a squirrel? <laughs> a small furry animal with a big bushy tail. For me, that would be a squirrel. Squirrel, two syllables. There's no such thing as a squirrel that rhymes with a whirl. So sometimes I find American pronunciation amusing. I'm sure that to uh, speakers of American English, my accent sometimes sounds comical or ridiculous. Sometimes people think that I'm uh, posh. And there's a reason also, I suppose, why British English speakers are often cast as villains in Hollywood movies. Today, I, as I said, I'm going to concentrate on the difference between American English and British English because that is what comes up most often when I'm 
when I am coaching clients and talking to English tourists. And they will often ask themselves, actually, oh, is this American? Because I'm not sure anymore what's American usage and what's British usage. And they want to speak a particular variant consistently. Now, I'm sure that you have come across some of the vocabulary differences between American English and British English. I'm not going to spend this whole episode talking about those differences. Uh, I'm just going to mention them in passing. Words like pants, rubber. I'm sure you know there's a different meaning between American and British English. Suspenders, the boot of a car, a bin, the loo, a trolley, the adjective homely, and also somebody's purse. These are all words that are used quite differently by um, Brits and by Americans. And maybe you can think of more. But today I want to focus on uh, a handful of expressions that could actually cause ambiguity or confusion in a meeting setting. And I don't think most of these words come up. Most of the words I've already mentioned, I don't think come up very often in meetings. They're part of everyday language rather than conference speak, if you like. But there are just two or three that I think could perhaps cause confusion or misunderstanding. I highly doubt that any of these would cause a diplomatic incident, <laughs> but maybe they're worth your knowing about, which is why I am recording this episode. The first one I want to mention, I hadn't actually occurred to me, but I got in touch with Josh Goldsmith of Tech Forward when I was preparing this episode, and he mentioned root. Now, for me, root has two spellings, R-O-O-T, and that would be the root of a plant, and R-O-U-T-E. A root is how you get from point A to point B. Now, that latter spelling, R-O-U-T-E, would be pronounced route by a speaker of American English. There are also the words router and router. Now, for me, a router is a little device that helps me connect to the internet. But that would be pronounced router by a speaker of American English. Router is a word that also exists in my idiolect, lovely word of Greek origin there, that means the specific variant of English that I speak. And router for me is a machine, actually, that I might find in my garage and use when I'm doing DIY. It's a machine that can um, drill a groove in in a piece of wood. So there you are, root, route, router, router. Next, I'd like to talk about the adjective nonplussed. I love this word. Somehow it, the shape of the word pleases me, nonplussed. To me, it means a reaction when someone has just said something or made a suggestion and you don't quite know what to say. You're taken aback in some way. Uh, you're not sure how to react or how you feel about it. That is the meaning of nonplussed for me. But as I understand it, in American English, nonplussed actually means unbothered, calm. I don't know if that's because it begins with the word non, so it somehow sounds as if you are unaffected. 
but apparently it has taken on this meaning in American English, which I think is different from British English. If somebody made a proposal in a meeting and the speaker that you were interpreting said, I'm nonplussed chairman, then you have to understand whether they mean, oh, really? Why did you make that proposal? Or, oh, yeah, that's fine with us. No particular reaction. The next one I'd like to talk about also has two slightly contradictory meanings, and that is the verb to table. Now, for me, tabling a proposal means putting it on the table, putting it forward, putting it up for discussion or debate. But in American English, my understanding is that it can mean to put something on the back burner, to sideline it, to decide that you're no longer going to discuss it or not for the time being. So again, two quite different meanings there, which are worth knowing about. I thought I would round off with a last expression, which I suppose could cause some ambiguity if a speaker said this in a meeting and you got the wrong end of the stick. And that is the first floor. In American English, like in many European countries, the first floor is what I would think of as the ground floor, where you haven't gone up any steps and you're talking about what is at ground level. So for me, that's the ground floor. But in the US, I understand that that's the first floor. And therefore, if you go up a flight of stairs, I would then call that the first floor. And I guess in the US, that would be called the second floor and so on and so forth. There you have it, my handful, or not even, of phrases that could cause misunderstandings between American and British English. Nonplussed, to table, the first floor, and route or route. I wonder if you can think of any more. If so, do get in touch. I'd love to hear them. And please do also send me an email or fill in the form I told you about if you have suggestions for future episodes, you can get hold of me at info at theinterpretingcoach.com. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And above all, I want to make sure that it's clear to everyone that I don't believe that there is one accent or one variant of English that is superior to another. And which one you use will depend on many factors. Where you learnt your English, if you're an English tourist whether you spent any time in an English-speaking country and which one, what your cultural and social influences are, for example, if you watch American series on TV, all sorts of things. And I think, uh, honestly, here in the UK, American influences are creeping in more and more, more and more. And I do wonder whether English teaching will end up focusing more on American English eventually than on British English. And I'd love to hear what you think about that. Speak to you soon. Bye. <laughs>